Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And today we're going to start off with a visit to a company you really need to know. It's based in Germany. It's called Fissler. And we're going to be talking to uh, Chris Robeson about some of their wonderful equipment. Which, which is now going on in the U.S., which is, which is where he's in charge. He's in charge, and they want to elevate their profile in the U.S., and considering the quality of the products, I don't think they're going to have much trouble doing that. Yeah, that then we're going to talk about uh, old-fashioned kitchens, rather than newfangled kitchens, Well, I guess. yeah, I mean, everybody's crazed over mid-century stuff now. We have a lot of it. Nobody seems to want to buy it when we offer. <laughs> and, and then... And then Stay, stay with us to the end of the program because we have an inter- interesting segment with our good friend, Uber chef, Chris Frangiatis, about his wonderful garden and how he's transforming his restaurant here in Pittsburgh. I think for me, um, it was surprising that I didn't know more about Fistler um, and his products. And we're going to be talking to uh, the, the Fistler USA Managing Director, Chris Robeson. Uh, and I want you to, to uh, correct my ignorance and tell us a little bit about Fistler, which is a well-established company. And from the products I've seen, uh, they are precise, sturdy, um, highly, I don't know, um, highly imagine for right, use. I mean, just tell us about how this started, a little of the backstory. It's a German company, right? That, yes, that is correct. So the, the, the backstory on Fissler. Fissler is uh, a cookware company which is based about an hour and a half west of Frankfurt, Germany, okay. in a small town called Edar Oberstein. Okay. And next year, Fissler will be celebrating its 175th anniversary. So it's a very long family-owned company based out of Germany. It's still family-owned? Still still family-owned to this day, completely within the family. Wow. Yeah. So, so the, the, the story jumping ahead to Fistler USA, um, Fistler has kind of been a brand in the United States for close to 25 years now. And going back from day one, there's been a lot of you know, attempts at, at really increasing brand awareness here in the USA through different distributors at times and, and, and different channels of bringing the brand um, to the U.S. market, um, which which on some levels has worked, on on some levels, to, to your point um, at the start of the call, that there's still people who are kind of surprised to hear about this 175-year-old cookware company, which makes spectacular products that are always um, well-reviewed and well-received if somebody does a, a cooking test or, or somebody actually has one of our pots at home and uses it, the reviews are always glowing. Yeah, so, so, so it's just a matter of uh, getting the word out, huh? It, it really it really is that. Plus, a, a couple years back, Fistler Germany made the decision that what we really need in the U.S. is our own dedicated, not, not 
going through a distributor, not going through um, other channels to, to drive brand awareness, but to really open up an actual Fistler subsidiary here in the USA. So oh. um, for, for the past two years, that's really been the focus about you know bringing more Fistler word to the marketplace, trying to gain more visibility, um, using some of the, the marketing agencies that we work with, um, spreading PR news, spreading, you know, more just general, more information about Fistler cookware. It, it, it's interesting that when you do come across somebody who does recognize the name Fistler in the cookware, it's almost always somebody who uses one of our stainless stovetop pressure cookers, uh-huh. which are, are generally considered the best stovetop pressure cookers made in the world. Um, they've been reviewed that way from, from Consumer Reports, Better Homes and Garden, America's Test Kitchen. Everybody really almost always comes back and says, when it comes to a stovetop stainless steel pressure cooker, you cannot beat Fistler. So that's usually where you, you come across somebody who's familiar with the brand. Oh, I, I know Fistler. I've had a Fistler, they'll call it a cooker, for 15 years, 20 years. It's fantastic. Yeah, they're sturdy as anything. They, that, that really is the crux of Fistler, is virtually everything that we make is made in Germany, and it's been made that way for decades and decades. And, yes, what we're really known for is, yes, how sturdy the pots and pans and pressure cookers are made, but also the material which we use, which is an incredibly high grade, whether it's a stainless steel, whether it's aluminum that we use for fry pans, it really is the best of the best material that's then made in Germany. We are in love with this new line, the adamant fry pan line. Tell us about material with that, because that's the the distinguishing characteristic of those fry pans, right? Correct. So so Adamant has a couple of really unique stories to it. It's still a fairly new line. It was introduced in 2018, so it's still relatively new to the marketplace. But it is probably one of the most innovative pieces of cookware that Fistler has introduced in a long time. Um, it's, it's an aluminum, heavy-grade aluminum hand body with a stainless induction bottom so that you can use it on any cooktop. You can use it on gas, electric, ceramic, induction. It's safe to use on, on anything. Oh, that's a, that's a funny thing. The markings at the bottom. It looks like it's, an, it looks like it's attached to the bottom. Yes, it is. It's and it's it's a it's not easy to attach a stainless cap to an aluminum pan. You, I'm sure it's not. There, yeah, I'm you've sure got to. There's a lot of engineering and German know-how going on with the bottom of that pan. Yeah. Right. The, right. Uh, the really innovative story to Adamant is the is the nonstick coating, yes. which That's... is completely unlike any. Nonstick, you're going to see on the market. Oh, it's fabulous! Uh, Absolutely fabulous! Because you know we've gone through this run of nonstick pans. I, I must yeah. have, they must people must have sent me four of them in recent uh, uh, months. I mean, it must be a whole new rush on 
start the uh, non-stick. Hey, he, but this he, is fabulous. Here's the, here's the cool thing about it. You can just slap it in the dishwasher. Yeah, yes, which you can. And you can actually use metal tools in it too. Now we did we, now we we did have a we did have a question about about it. Yep. Because at the very end of the handle is a piece that looks like it's plastic. It's a it is. And, and, and we asked someone we asked we asked someone in customer service because we could get them on the phone. Is is it safe to put that pan in the in the oven? Only up to three hundred and fifty degrees. And that, that was the answer. That is correct. Up to three hundred and fifty degrees. And really it's it's you don't want to heat that handle up past that because it is it's a very sturdy, hard piece of plastic, but it still is plastic. I mean, why did they put a plastic handle on pan like that? Why would they? Yeah. Um, number one, you can you can form it to any shape that you want. Eat much easier than you could if you were using a stainless steel or a cast steel I material. See. So you can you can form it to exactly the best fit to someone's hand in the kitchen. Number two, the reason why Fissler uses that handle on adamant is because when you have it on the stovetop. And because the nonstick is so unique, you, you can heat it to higher temperatures than you normally would with a nonstick fry pan, and that handle will stay cool no matter how long that piece is on the stovetop. Okay. We okay. love it. We love it. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know what I was missing. Yeah, I mean, that's really, that's really the key is you could, if you wanted to sear something or you wanted to saute something and you're using higher heat, um, even if it's on the stove top for 20, 25 minutes, you can you can pick up that handle at any point, and it's going to be room temperature. It never gets hot. Oh, now, wow. it will get hot after yeah. it's in the oven. Yeah. Then you do have to use a potholder or a towel to take it out. Um, but on the stove top, that's really the, the primary reason of why Fissler chose to use it on adamant. But for the for the past few decades... Even our, our finest stainless steel collections will feature a similar, not quite the same design as Adamant, but um, a similar material for that exact reason, that it'll always stay cool on the stovetop. Why is it called Adamant? That, that's a, you know what? That's a question that I probably should have asked Germany way, way, way Back, I, so believe me. I'm sure that there's. I'm sure that there is a. Very, oh, if it's German, I'm sure there's a reason. <laughs> oh, there's, there's, there's somewhere. There's definitely a reason, and I will, uh, I will try to find that out. But I know that the name Adamant is correlated to the nonstick coating, which is, which is so unique to the marketplace because it contains a natural material called silicon carbide. That's what, yeah, I was trying to remember what that was. Yep. That's what it is, and that's, that's the material which is added um, to the coating as it's applied in Germany. And after the pan is cured, what you end up with is it, it almost has kind of a grainy, textured feel to it. Um, but the reason why Fissler goes to use silicon carbide particles in the nonstick coating is because, number one, silicon carbide is a natural material here on, on Earth. And number two, it is incredibly resistant to wear. Right. Meaning, when the question came up before, 
or the point came up before that what I can use metal utensils yes. on a nonstick fry pan? No. And the answer is yes, because it contains silicon Oh, this one you particles. can, but you can't on any other nonstick fry pan. You can, if you, you, know, you, you, can, can if you want to ruin it, I guess. Yes. Yeah, you can scratch them up really, really bad. Really bad. Yeah, and really but, quick, too. You, you can't really do that with adamant. I mean, I, I have been using one myself for close to a year now, and it's it immediately became my favorite piece of cookware. And I've been in the industry for 25 years, cookware specifically. And from day one, um, I, I told Germany this is one of the most unique pieces of nonstick cookware I've ever used in my life. Well, uh, let me tell you what it compares with, and it's becoming our favorite go-to fry pan. Uh, we have, of course, we live in the area of all clad, so we have sure. a, we have copper core skillets on from all clad. Uh, we also uh, have um, all of my grandmother's cast iron skillets, which were always my go-to skillets. Yep. And and yeah, and this this holds its own. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, all-clad, all-clad, all-clad copper core is fantastic cookware. There is no getting around that. It, it's been well-made since day one. Oh, yes. And and also, we'll be honest, I'm a huge fan of, of cast-iron cookware pre-season. Yes. Um, I like I, I, I season my own. It's, I tried the uh, lodge pre-seasoned, and and uh, what I season my own of my old grandmother's stuff is much better. Yeah, look, I I am not going. I'll never ever debate or argue anyone who mentions those two collections because they've been around for a long time. They've proven their ability. They're proven products in the kitchen. I'm a huge fan of both. I'm a big fan of of. I I have four pieces of cast iron cookware. Uh-huh. The interesting thing that I found with Adamant, when I first used it, my immediate reaction back to Germany was, this is such a unique piece of cookware because it's almost like combining stainless steel, a nonstick, and a cast iron in that it incorporates exactly. what's really, really beneficial to all three, meaning... I, I, it's nonstick, but I can use a metal whisk if I wanted to make a pan sauce or a gravy, and it, it almost sears and sautés like a cast iron without the excess weight. It's, it's, to, yeah. like I, to me, it was from day one, I just thought this was, this is combining kind of the best attributes of different materials into one fry pan. Chris, you're so right. Yeah, Chris, let's go. Let's go back a second, because I because I had a a question that I, I don't want to I don't want to slide by, and then uh, I know Anne wants to, to to get in on it again. But you you talked originally about your your pressure cooker, I guess, and you said it was a stove top, and that's right. I guess that's a class of pressure cooker. Now the ones that are crazy, everybody's crazy about these days, the instant pots. Yep. They they plug they plug in. They right. plug, yes. They they are they are electric multi pots, electric pressure cookers. Um, yes. So so the 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 principle is 
pretty much the same. I mean, um, a pressure cooker is a pressure cooker. Um, the difference between yeah. a stovetop version and an electric version is that stovetop pressure cookers are able to achieve higher pressure levels than an electronic pressure cooker. I mean, for a few reasons. Number one, you're talking about uh, stovetop is you're talking about an entirely made stainless steel pressure cooker with backup release safety valve uh, compared to the electric versions which are in the marketplace now they still contain a lot of plastic and parts where you, you don't want to go too far on the PSI pressure rating spectrum um, but the ones that are in the market do a fine job. The electric versions do a fine job of pressure cooking. It's a little bit longer than a stovetop. Um, I mean, a, a Fistler stovetop is going to last you forever. There's really, I mean, other than replacing the the, the gasket, um, which is what you need to create the pressure inside the pot. Um, so, that, I mean, that's, there's, there, there are some slight differences, but... Well, how did you get to, I mean, I know that there is a demand for this instant pot, and so we, it's, it's sort of like Kleenex, anything that's a multi-cooker is an instant pot these days. But, um, yeah. but you have now a, a, a it's called Supreme Multipot. That's and, correct. And that, are you saying that, um, that this, the pressure cooking function of that is not as good as the stovetop? You know, it, I wouldn't say, I would not say it's not as good. That I don't think that's the right way to, to, to frame the point. I think the point is um, our, our Fistler Supreme Multipot, Instant Pot, other versions which are in the marketplace now, will work great as a pressure cooker. The difference would just be that because you're somewhat limited into the the max PSI pressure that you yeah. can achieve is not as much as it would be with a stovetop version. So a stovetop is going to be a little quicker than an electric version, but even the electric version using the, the pressure cooker function is 70% faster than traditional if you were to braise something in the oven. Yeah. And that's really what a pressure cooker. A pressure cooker is used to break down the tougher cuts of meat products much quicker Faster. than you would be able to achieve if you were braising something in the oven. Well, we've been reviewing so, all kinds of cookbooks. It turns out that um, that we had interviewed somebody coming from India, and his mother packed a pressure cooker in his luggage to move to the United States because it, that's – French cooking, Indian cooking, uh, pressure cookers are central to all of that. And now, it's, why it's is there this appetite for the uh, instant pot and these multi-purpose um, uh, cookers? No, I mean, this does everything. No. Uh, tell us about the Supreme multi-pot. How okay, many functions? I'll, I'll, I will. I'll, I'll get the, the Supreme. But I'm going to answer your initial question first. Okay. It is, is what is really driving this demand and craze for instant pot electric yes. pressure cookers? 
if if you go back and look at kind of the history of pressure cooking in the U.S., you go back six years ago, there was no such thing as an instant pot or an electronic pressure cooker. They were all stovetops. Yeah. And I mean, my mother had one. Sure. <laughs> and it sure. exploded, and I had spaghetti embedded in the ceiling. And at that point, we gave <laughs> and, it to it. We gave it to a friend. <laughs> no. And, right? This is my mother's. You, Didn't we you get one? You basically just answered why a pressure cooker in the U.S. have always been kind of a very small niche business um, for people who grew up with a pressure cooker or grew up in a country that did nothing but pressure cook. Um, so they've been in the U.S. for a very, very, very long time. But it's always historically been a very small portion of the overall cookware business in the United States. For safety but, reasons. Yeah. Well, it's, it's yes, safety concerns, even though the, the pressure cookers like Fissler on the market now are incredibly, incredibly safe. There's right. there's redundant safety features built into stovetop pressure cookers made today. They're incredibly safe and well-made um, pieces of cookware. But customers who didn't really understand pressure cooking or grew up with pressure cooking always looked at pressure cookers as a very mysterious form of cooking because uh, as U.S. cooks, for the most part, have just been taught that when you cook something, you want to be able to take the lid off, stir something, look at something, add additional ingredients. And with a pressure cooker, you can't do that. Once the pressure cooker is locked and under pressure, you can't remove the lid and whatever happens inside of that pressure cooker is going to happen. So there are always questions about how long do I cook it for? When do I turn the, the heat down? I know I have to turn the heat down at some point so that I don't create too much pressure, and then you lose a lot of steam, and with steam goes the nutrients. And I, there was just, there's all this kind of hocus-pocus mystery going on in the background when it came to pressure cookers. Instant Pot, when they came out in the marketplace years ago, a few years ago, they changed all of that in that you only had to push a couple of buttons, you had to set the timer, and then the machine did everything for you. It brought itself up to pressure. It'll, re- it'll release pressure when needed. It'll shut itself off when the, the timer is done, whatever you're cooking. So what, what that did is it really stripped away a lot of the mystery and apprehension um, concerns about pressure cooking. And almost overnight, everybody in the U.S., the light bulb went off and it said, you know, this pressure cooking thing is really pretty cool because I, I, can, I, can, I can cook something that normally would have taken me three hours. I can make it in an hour or 45 minutes. And then, and then from there... Um, there's different functions with, with all of them. People figured out they could, you could make chili, you beans, you could do soup, stock, stews, all kinds of things, um, with one pot 
that took up a pretty limited amount of space in your kitchen on on the countertop, and it's just skyrocketed from there. I mean, America has always kind of been infatuated with the one hot meal. It, it is sort of kind of how America cooks, which is why when Crock-Pots came out decades ago... Oh, yeah. I had one of those, they, too. My mother did, rather. Absolutely. That, they, I could put everything in, in the pot in the morning and come home and I had dinner. Yeah, and so, then there's the slow so, cooker that was on our, our son's um, marriage or wedding list for what he wanted, and they use it all correct. the time. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so then Instant Pot showed up and made pressure cooking simple, approachable, easy, foolproof, um, and no one has really looked back. I mean, there's really nothing... Um, as far as, you know, the trends within the industry that say that that is going to slow down anytime soon because it, you know, it, it is kind of a all in one answer to quick weeknight meals. You could, you could throw something together really, yeah, really can, quick. Can I say something as a skeptic? Um, you have to choose what you're going to do. You can't do it all at once. So, I mean, you you mainly going to use it, I think, as a pressure cooker. Period. But then yeah. you, you came along and you added another feature called sous vide, yeah. correct? Which is correct. the exact opposite of um, of a pressure cooker. It's the complete opposite of a pressure cooker, and it was incredibly important that when we brought our Fitzler Supreme multipot to the marketplace, it had and included integrated. No, but you're not the only manufacturer that uh, has uh, sous vide as a function, are you? No, no, no. There's there's some other ones in the marketplace that have integrated sous vide. Ours um, kind of stands out because we figured out a way to, to maintain water temperature accuracy within one degree. So yours is a better sous vide. It really is. It really is. I used it last night. I probably do sous vide two or three times a week. What do you make? Um, what did you make last night? Last night was a uh, was very thick cut bone in pork chop. Okay. That um, I just salted, peppered, threw some some fresh sage and rosemary in the bag, sealed them, got the air out, sealed them, put them in, set the uh, pressure or the presence, the temperature for 151 degrees, and I left them in there for two and a half hours because it was a Sunday, and I didn't really want to have to fuss or worry about, you know, when to start dinner. So I, I, I want to say that I put them in around 2.30, 3 o'clock, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And then um, once everybody was hungry, we simply took them out, seared them really quick, in my adamant, of course. Why would I? <laughs> That's why we have the adamant, so we could do that. It it really is. I mean, ad, there's a great example of adamant. Um, you, you you take your sous vide um, out of the bag, pat it down, pat it dry, put it in the adamant, and two minutes later, you've got a completely perfectly cooked pork chop, chicken. It really doesn't matter what it, vegetables. Um, that to me, that's the beauty of of sous vide is yeah I could I could certainly 
cook a steak to 128 degrees in an hour. But a lot of times, just, you know, on a Saturday or Sunday, if we have friends coming over, you just don't want to worry about, you know, what time to start dinner. To me, that's the beauty of sous vide. I could put something in, I could put chicken breast uh, in in the Supreme Multipod at at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and then when everybody's ready to eat, whether it's 6, 6, 3, whatever, dinner's done. It's yes, yeah, I mean, that makes more sense. I mean, I, I, I really can't get behind this uh, uh, 55-minute sous vide egg that WD-50 used to have. <laughs> I mean, it comes out, and I look at it, and I said, Peter, you know what this is? It's a caudled egg. That's what it is. And it took 55 minutes. <laughs> now, I, to be fair, I one of the, one of my favorites using the Supreme is actually to, to make poached eggs in the shell in the Supreme. Now, it does take... 45 minutes at 143 degrees, um, but after 45 minutes at 143, you can literally take the egg out of the water, lightly crack it open, and pour out a perfectly poached egg. Wait, now tell me that again. Is that in my user's manual, which is the one criticism I have, is it's not really easy to follow. No, and, and I'm glad you brought that point up. Yeah, I have the updated version. I still don't understand it that well. We are we are currently because the Supreme is still even new for us. It's the first time Fiddler has brought an electronic version of anything to the United States. Oh, so, end. so we're we're um, and by we I mean myself and our marketing agency are continually kind of going through and looking for ways to create additional content specifically around things like eggs, rice, grains, things that, you know, customers are really going to use the Supreme for a lot, not just as sous vide, not just as a pressure cooker, not just not to, to, not to make yogurt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. But but but, 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 but Chris, yeah. Chris, Chris, there's one there's one thing you gotta do. You have to make the print bigger. <laughs> I you, you yeah, have to, you have to make the print bigger. I just can't, I just can't read it. I'm, I'm, I'm visually impacted. Well, I'm sure that my marketing agency is going to listen to this soon. Good. And, and we'll, we'll probably contact immediately to address that issue. <laughs> well, well, you know, you're a great spokesperson for this because I mean, you've used it. I mean, you you know the ins and outs of it. You're a real pro, Chris. Yeah, and and, uh, if, well, you, and if you're uh, ever uh, if you're ever looking for another job, <laughs> we, we'll we'll call Peter Cameron from All Clad on 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 your, I, um, on your behalf. This, I mean, this, but this interview for me is very very simple and natural because my supreme is always out. It's not something that I ever put away. For example, here's here's another just real quick. Um, a lot of times. I will grill chicken wings or something uh, outside on the grill. And if it's wings, if I'm doing wings and we're, we're, we're going to do some entertaining, I'll buy whole wings and I'll cut them up. I'll break them down myself. And you always have these extra wing tips. Or even if you debone a chicken, you've got a backbone. 
I keep my Supreme out at all times. So when I do something with chicken and I break down and I've got extra bones, you make I will simply broth. just, I'll fill the pot with water, toss the bones in, maybe a couple of aromatics like onions, a little celery, bay leaf, set it for one hour, and I've got chicken stock in, in, without even really thinking about having to make chicken stock. That's a great that, idea. It's that simple and it's that easy. So, again, for me, talking about the supreme and the adamant is is easy because they're getting used all the time. I always tell everybody when it comes to adamant, and believe me, you are you are certainly not the only people that have said this is really one of the most remarkable fry pans I've ever used. You hear that from from any, everybody who uses it for the first time, and it now me. It's to the point where my adamant just stays on the stovetop. I mean, I've got an 11 inch adamant fry pan, and I just leave it out. I don't usually. I'll cook and clean and put everything away, but it got to be so redundant taking this thing out. Whether it was breakfast, lunch, dinner, I just leave it out. Yeah, I just pretty much out usually too. <laughs> yeah, same same here. Same exactly. It's great for fried green tomatoes, by the way. Like I said, it's, it's going back to it's, it's combining some of the best attributes of some of the best materials for cookware into one. It's just a ridiculously versatile piece of cookware. Well, anyhow, I'm pleased to yeah. finally have met Fissler and uh, played with the products, and I really, uh, and I think it. it it's a life changer, to be honest. And Chris, thank it, you, thank you for taking over on the menu for a week. <laughs> oh! <laughs> oh, you've been a delight, Chris. I, I, I've got my own work to do. I've got to continue to build this brand here in the U.S. Off you go. Off you well, go. When, you know, I mean, you, truly. When you, got, when you got something else that's new, yeah, let us come back on. We're happy to test it all. Give me about eight months, and I will have. Something. Something also extra special and worth talking about. Really? Great. Another's extra special. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to talking to you then. And in the meantime, thank you so much for your contribution to our program. Thanks, it Chris. Has been my, it's been my pleasure, believe me. <laughs> we told you this was a good story, didn't we? These, these, these pots and pans are just... Yeah, we're kind of in love with this new thing. So, 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 well, we're, we're always kind of in love with anything newfangled. Well, it's not newfangled. I mean, it goes back all those years. It, it I mean, does. it's just it's been um, Eurocentric, I guess. Well, the, the other th- the other thing to remember is, is it kept pace with what's going on. Oh, yes. in the rest of the culinary world. So, just about all their pots are now are suitable for induction. They're, they're, the handles are made out of material so they won't burn your hand when you hold on to it. These, these people are on the ball and we'll be back with somebody else who's on the ball right after this break. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net.
Welcome back. Um, next up, we have Sarah Archer, who is a yeah, um, she, she has a pulse on, on style, and she is concerned here with an era and just finds the whole era through um, the look of one particular room in the house, which is, of course, the kitchen. The book is called Mid-Century Kitchen, and it calls it Americans, America's Favorite Room from Workspace to Dreamscape. 1940s and 1970s, and anybody who's ever had to live with an avocado green refrigerator knows what we're talking about. This has certainly been a trip down memory lane, Sarah Archer. <laughs> Your book, The Mid-Century <laughs> Kitchen, America's Favorite Room from Workspace to Dreamscape. Um, as I was reading this book, <laughs> I kept thinking, when I was a Girl Scout, uh, I we had little kits, and one of the badges we had to design a kitchen, an efficient wow. kitchen. Wow! <laughs> oh, how cool! I'm and, jealous. <laughs> I, I'm sure they don't do that anymore. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so I, maybe they should. <laughs> well, you I mean you give a meaning to all these changes that I never even thought about. Why did you write this? That's a great question. Kind of a tough question too, because I think it's. Um, a time period that I'm, I've always been really fascinated by, and it's kind of the, the cluster of decades right before I was born. And so it was sort of my parents' uh, heyday of mm-hmm. design, I suppose, or kind of parents and grandparents more. Um, and there was so much change. And, I, you know, so many things radically changed for kind of daily life for so many people oh, yeah. in this cluster of decades. And during that time... There's a real focus on the future and science fiction, like the Jetsons and Star Trek, and kind of thinking, you know, what will it be like in 1980 or 1990? Because so many things have happened between, you know, let's say 1920 and 1950 in terms of how people live and how much easier certain things are, that it's sort of understandable that there was this expectation that we would be, you know, living on the moon and by 1990 or what have you. And it's right. And things have, apart from the computer revolution and kind of cell phones and you know, mobile devices and information, a lot of things about the kitchen today kind of haven't actually really changed that much since the post-war ideal. They've changed visually. They've changed stylistically. So, you know, of course, you always know if there's somebody has a 70s kitchen or an 80s kitchen. But in terms of utility, um, there doesn't seem to be this real appetite for, you know, quote-unquote, the future with a capital F the way there used to be. So I think because of that, um, I was just fascinated by this time period, thinking, what what is it about this time that made people so entranced with that idea? And this was kind of the result of that that curiosity. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's it's true. I never put it all together the way you did, but it's true. Um, yeah, and uh, the you mentioned people in this book that I it took me a while, like Raymond Lau Raymond Lowey. Yes, Raymond. Yeah, he was one of the great. We great, met him um, in Philadelphia. Oh wow, that's amazing! What it, what was the occasion? He, what was what? Well, what was the occasion for for me? Oh him? no, we, when we were living there, we had the, a friend, um, Ruth Bressler. Well, now what did she oh, end yeah. up being? Ruth what? Harley. Harley. But anyhow, he was one of her friends, and she had him at a party. Amazing! Wow. Yeah. But he. He considered himself more famous for designing the grill on the Lincoln Continental. 
Yeah. Exactly. That was sort of the thing that he was really known for. And I think part of the reason why Sears wanted to work with him to design this refrigerator, the cold spot, was to kind of borrow a touch of that glamour of kind of, you know, trains and cars and sort of that, um, you know, sort of 1930s streamlining look and kind of give some of that, um, you know, that, that the glint of chrome that you would see on those those transportation devices to something that you the can have at home. whiskers. <laughs> exactly. Which is my, my all-time, I'm a cat person, so that's one of my all-time favorite phrases. <laughs> no, it's funny because before we, before we came on the air, we were talking about our, our 1940s kitchen. <laughs> oh, exactly. And yeah. The, no, and, it's, the, it's, and the stove we inherited was a uh, an Oldsmobile from about 1950. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, like right, it looks like a command center, right? It does. I used to call it my airplane. Now, and it, it, right. Yeah, the, absolutely. The Bakelite knob is lit up when you turn on the stove. Oh, wow. They eventually, so started, cool. they eventually started to burn, if you remember. <laughs> right. <laughs> the one downside. And the... And the the thermocouple gave out, so we so we had to, so we had to replace it. We replaced it with something that was much less satisfactory. Oh, they're all anything we've that had since. So just, what, yeah, what, they don't they don't have they're not they're not colorful anymore in the same way. What was the one in between? The one where I where I in order to get it, the oven going, you had to bang you had to bang the control unit. <laughs> no, that was the one that followed the airplane. Okay. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, the manufacturer was some KitchenAid, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I wasn't a KitchenAid. It was, it was awful. It was some cheap thing. Okay. Well, whatever, whatever it was, anyway, there was one, one end of the, of the control panel that if, if you hit it, it would, it would somehow come to life. I mean, he hit it. He hit I it with a hammer. hammer and he shattered the glass and it went into my spinach. Oh, no. <laughs> That's when we got I a used, new stove. I used to wrap the hammer in a cloth. That was later, yeah. <laughs> was it a different one? But anyhow, um, you, you have a lot of observations about how this all relates to social structure. Um, and, and, and that's true. And, and, but the, the, icons of kitchen production are still, I mean, like Pyrex is an incredible mm-hmm. product. Mm-hmm. But, it's but still, you, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's it's I have some of my mother's uh, Pyrex things, like Ooh. you talk about that blue stuff, I have one of those. Yep. But, but, yeah, that is one of those things that has, um, in a funny way, come back into vogue because it, increasingly people are concerned about using plastic. Mm-hmm. And particularly using using plastic in the household and using it in contact with food or drink. Or so there's this, yeah. and exactly, my, you know, all these concerns about safety. And I, my understanding is that it's still a little fuzzy in terms, you know, the science. There hasn't been kind of a, an absolute declaration that you know you mustn't ever use it, or it's absolutely okay, or it's it's kind of somewhere yeah. in between. Well, have- and I think people people like to use glass because uh, you don't have to worry about it. Well, we just have a, a new rule for our recycling. Uh, and it has lists of what you cannot recycle in different categories. And oh, under glass, you're not, you cannot recycle Pyrex. Really? Yeah. Wow. I don't know why. I wonder why. It's probably something to do with the formulation. I was trying to get a word in edgeways there. But, uh, the, <laughs> interesting, the, the interesting thing is that the company that, that made Pyrex, the glass, is, is now far and away best known for making fiber optic cables. Yes, that's right. Corning. Yeah, their their headquarters. It's interesting if you visit. Um, I've been there. The Corning. You've been, yeah, the Corning Museum of Glass. You can go up and see 
um, their collection. But in terms of the housewares and stuff, most of that stuff is made overseas. It's mostly made um, in China and, and imported. It's not sort of profitable for them to make uh, dishware anymore, but they're, in, they're doing all sorts of high-tech stuff with, uh, as you say, fiber optics and, you know, glass for computers and phones and that kind of stuff. You know, I find this whole prospect of the kitchen of the future to be very intimidating. I mean, I, I, I do as well. <laughs> I, I can't stand the idea that you can start with one drawer and freeze, thaw, cook, <laughs> and and uh, refrigerate all in one. Or no, oh, clean the dishes place. all in one like drawer. Is this like one of those uh, washer dryers that both washes and dries on the same same device? Never seems to really work. <laughs> I know. So right, right, we 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 had we had one. My mother had one of those. It was was a Hoover, I think. Mm-hmm. And it, it oh had, wow! It had this really curious control unit that you plugged you plugged it in different ways depending on what kind of cycle you wanted. <laughs> and it was it was it was really magic. My mother really liked it. Yeah. Well, oh, that's interesting to hear. Yeah. So um, you know, some of these it was sort of like a Rubik's cube. Yeah, they, right. some of the designers that that you mentioned, particularly when we're hitting mid-century modern, I actually have a Joe Colombo lamp. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. wow, yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> not. Did you happen to, to buy it in the seventies? I bought it. Yeah, and when yeah. I when I lived in Philadelphia. But it's cool. not. In, but it's not in the kitchen. No, right. the <laughs> yeah, the 70s designers, that was kind of um, the far out sort of real experimental thinking about what a kitchen is or could be. And I, I love some of those ideas, the, the, you know, kind of the um, kitchen in a cart or um, the Atori Satsas idea of kind of a modular living space that's endlessly adaptable that you can kind of, you know, have different pods that connect to one another. And um, it's not necessarily for a nuclear family. It was, I think, tapping into a little bit of this idea of the commune and living communally in that era. So that that really um, is an interesting counterpoint, I think, to the, the standard kind of nuclear family kitchen that we're used to seeing. Well, now, I mean, people tell me you cannot have a kitchen without an island. <laughs> mm, interesting. What? Yeah, I mean, I we have an we have island. A, we have a kitchen without an island. But yeah, but we yeah, we a, do too. <laughs> th- there was an island when we moved in, and, and it was so cramped that we just took it out. Took it yeah, out. Yeah, it, it, it depends on how much uh, floor space you want. Yeah, it, it depends on how much storage space you need, how much floor space. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, our house is Victorian. When you talk about the history of cooking and stuff, um, cooking. The kitchen of our house, which was built in 1860, was a fireplace in the basement. Oh, so a real old oldie. Yeah. yeah how wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So hard, yeah, the, really. And yeah, the, the, there, was, there was kitchen. no kitchen. There was no kitchen. Well, the kitchen right. was the pan. What we used Good. for kitchen now was a pan. Was out a pantry. They would bring the food okay. from the basement to the first main floor. And there was yeah. a pass-through, which I closed mm-hmm. off, between the kitchen and the dining room, so the servants mm-hmm. would do For that. servants, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, and that's what I think a lot of people who have moved into sort of older houses and think maybe, or older apartments, and notice that their kitchens are configured oddly, may not realize that the, exactly. the reason they seem odd is because they're not, they weren't there originally. They were kind of retrofitted and don't, don't really quite work in the uh-huh. same way. It's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, well, um, 
the I heard that the trend. See, I wish you had just gone a little further with your book. Actually, maybe I have to next time. It's part two. It's coming up. Part two. Part two. Exactly. You know, I mean, like the trends. You notice trends in the design of of well, not the furniture, but you know, like storage and the kitchen. And I mean, I know. Hoosiers because a friend from Philadelphia came to visit and found one in an antique store in Pittsburgh. Oh, fun. Yeah, and then it took took it back. And, um, yeah, that, that was her husband's job to figure out how to go from Philadelphia to <laughs> Pittsburgh <laughs> to Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah. um, but you you say about how um, the, the remoteness of keeping the smoke out. I didn't realize chimneys were built that discovered or designed that late you said i forget what di- what date you said chimneys were yeah it basically um in 18th century is my is my understanding that sort of there wasn't kind of a hard and fast date when everybody suddenly decided to have one but it was kind of around that time that the ability to channel smoke away from the living space improved it didn't fix it entirely but uh-huh. it, it was much better than it had been before but that really meant that still up until um, the time that you have gas stoves, which is not really until, you know, the earliest 1900 or so, you are, you know, burning fuel in the house, uh, you know, and kind of making the, that kind of dust and sort of imagine the cleaning and the air quality and all of the, the hard work that goes through sort of keeping it going and getting it up to temperature and keeping it there, and you know, all of that is the things that we sort of take for granted about our appliances because it's been so long since yeah. we've had to deal with that kind of Thing. It's really, it's pretty mind blowing. Yeah, I had two Auntie Margarets growing up. That was what she, she cooked everything on it. I mean, yeah, you, you didn't yeah. boil, you didn't boil water on a on a power, on a element on top of the stove. You, yeah, you, you you boiled it by putting it on top of the aga. And yeah. my understanding is that the aga is sort of always on. It is. Some extent, yes. like it's always hot. But which that's is such an the problem. I yeah, mean, right. You know, when in summertime, you don't want that, do you? Well, the, oh, it's, the, it's the reason horrible, they, yeah. The reason they installed it is they Frank, Frank helped his father build that bungalow. Uh-huh. They actually built oh. it, and and it served a dual purpose because it was the it was the heating for the house, right? And it was also the heating for the cooking. Right. Yeah, that was a that was a very common solution. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, I don't. We know. Did, we did, I think they're so pretty. The Argos, but I don't want to have that heating on. And we did. We didn't really notice <laughs> it was too hot in the summertime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody. That's true. They didn't. That's well, why no, you got these cold foods in the summer. Because we lived in England, so we had the temperature. Right. Oh, exactly. <laughs> you don't have terribly hot summers. If the temperature right, right. Got, got to sixty-five degrees, you took all your clothes off and ran around. <laughs> Now you indicate that um, that not only the the furniture aspect, the shelving aspect, uh, the uh, functional equipment aspect, but you can pretty well date um, kitchens by the color. Absolutely, it's yeah. I mean, particularly in the twentieth century, the sort of those middle decades. And the funny thing is that there's this very strong connection that exists between kitchens in that era and the auto industry. Which strikes people nowadays, whenever I mention that, people are totally confused because it makes no, really no sense on the surface of it. But um, Frigidaire was owned by General Motors and in that right, era. Right, and there were that, things yes. like you could go right, go to Motorama to see all the cool new you know concept cars. You might also see 
the kitchen of tomorrow, the kitchen of the future, and, you know, see this really all these kind of nifty devices like a portable grill or what have you. And so the color sort of annual styling trends in which cars come in a new color palette every year and kind of decade by decade, you can kind of see the bigger trends if you zoom out. The same thing applies to appliances. And it sort of gets to this idea of companies training consumers to think of durable goods as, in some sense, disposable. So that if you have a, you know, let's say a stove that's like bright pink and you bought it in 1952, by 1962 or 72, it starts to look really dated. So you think, wow, I guess I, you know, got to redo the kitchen and we'll yeah. get one that's avocado green or what have you. So it's it, it, in the same way that we buy new computers, new cell phones, and, and indeed new clothes from since uh, the time of uh, the, the beginning of, of annual styling and fashion, um, it turns these, you know, just kind of workhorse appliances into sort of articles of fashion almost, which yeah. is a really new idea. Yeah. And entertaining in your kitchen and showing off your absolutely you know. showing off your your snazzy new new space new new living space yeah which it never had been. Well, I mean, it's, I, I just never thought of it as being so connected to social structure. <laughs> so it's, it sort of sneaks up on you, right? <laughs> yeah, but you you had some really hilarious things in here. Uh, the ads of um like, oh, the ads are amazing, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the vacuuming with the pearls and stuff. I, mean, I know. Oh, my God. But, but the, the can opener cookbook is a real delight. A, right. There was this kind of fascinating, like, backlash, which I actually didn't really know about until I started doing research for this book because I had this idea that in that time period, people were, you know, watching Julia Child on TV and kind of learning how to cook with butter and, it was, you know, in the French way and all these kind of exciting new food things happening, you know, after World War II, people getting exposed to more exotic foods. And there was very much, uh, you know, a push in the opposite direction of lots of women who just said, like, I, this is not for me. I don't care about this. I'm not interested in this. But there's this expectation with all these kind of high-fashion kitchens that everything kind of has to be a big production. So I think like the, the pressure increased on just ordinary people to produce something different, something novel, something that, you know, we haven't had before. Um, and I think those books are a really funny, uh, you know, kind of almost like proto-feminist sort of, you know, way of saying like this, it's, you know, you don't have to spend your entire day menu exactly. planning. You can do, do other things. <laughs> Here's one called The Joys of Jello. Peter has a funny story about encountering a Jello salad on his first trip to America. Oh, I have Yeah, that must have been terrifying. He had no idea what to do with it. Yeah, I, didn't know I can to, imagine. I didn't know what to do. It was, ch- it was chicken salad. I didn't even recognize it was chicken salad. Because oh, so in, England, in England, they don't do chicken salad that way. Right, because it's, it's called shape, right? In and, England, and then, it's and usually then, and then it was in a and it's sweet. And then it was in a jello mold. Right, right. There, there was a funny color, like oh my god, it's so gross. I just yeah, like that. that's one of those, those mid-century foods that I just can't. I, I you know I like certain things, like I'll, I'll have a rumaki, but I yeah, <laughs> yeah it's I, the, the the savory jello dishes are are uh, or I think their their time is is, is past. <laughs> <laughs> I never, I was never into that. But now tell us, you mentioned about them. Um, James Beard and Julia Child, and I mean, what was their influence on the development of, of the style of kitchens? Oh, I think Julia Child in particular was 
huge on, um, I mean, her kitchen is actually in the Smithsonian. I don't know if you visited that in Washington, D.C. You can see it installed. It's really cool. And it was the first example, really, of um, a kitchen that was not part of a sitcom set being featured, you know, week after week on TV so that people could actually see how, how she was using it, how she was using her tools, where how they were stored. And it really wasn't anything fancy. Like, she had the pegboard, the, you know, the, the pale blue pegboard with all of the yeah, different, it was you know, implements and this wonderful collection of things that she had amassed over a lifetime of, of cooking and traveling. And um, I think that inspired people... Um, around that time period in the late 60s, you start to see a lot more editorials and magazines that feature, um, you know, interesting tools and gadgets for the kitchen, not so much, you know, quote-unquote, from the future, but just kind of neat things like copper pots, you know, different things that you might not have that would be like a cool gift or, you know, that sort of thing. So it's kind of embracing the gourmand. And, and Julia's Kitchen really was um, your place on PBS to kind of um, take a peek at that. You know, what would that be like? Oh yeah, I mean it's it, it's yes. <laughs> I I think we don't have second thoughts about it now, but it, it was really important to have all these little gadgets. We got so many of them still. I mean, oh, sure. single, yeah. well, single it's use still gadgets. I can't the believe it. Gift, right? It's you know some kind of interesting kitchen implement is the perfect you know wedding gift or what have you. Yeah, I mean, I like strawberry hullers. <laughs> What was the the one the other one that they sent us a sample of this, and we were doing the show live at the time, and uh, in the studio, and it was an avocado pitter, and oh, I mean I really expected wow. it to be doing something wonderful. I, mean, I never realized it was so hard getting a pit out of an avocado, and it, of course That's isn't. So funny. And we we discovered we discovered that the way we were using it was entirely incorrect. Well, yeah. <laughs> Says, we put, we put the th- I put the thing on the end and I bashed it, I bashed it through. through the arc, through, through the, the avocado. avocado from stem to stern. It took away half of the avocado. Out, out came some avocado and in the middle was the, was the pit. And then there was some more on the end. We discovered what you were really supposed to do, you, you were supposed to use it to get the avocado out of the skin once you had cut it in half. Yeah, to cut it in half first. Oh, <laughs> brilliant. With, That's with, so with, funny. with a different appliance. Oh, right, right. Well, this this book is, is so much fun, Sarah Archer, um, and I can't wait for the sequel. <laughs> Oh, that's a great, you know, I had not actually thought of doing that, but I think that's kind of a great idea. The 80s, 90s, you know, it's, oh, there's, yeah, I mean, there's the a lot out there. Yeah, there's a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff out there now, uh, technology-wise. I mean, oh, yeah. refrigerators come with computers in the in the uh, doors and, you know, all kinds of it's stuff. The, the, fu- the future has arrived yes. at long last, I guess, right? <laughs> so, Sarah Archer, congratulations and much success with your book. Uh, Thank you so much. It's called the Mid-Century Kitchen, and I think you'll you'll look at your kitchen in a different way once you read this book. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net.
you know, closing out the program, we bring you our dear friend, Christian Frangiatis, who never does anything halfway. <laughs> he has, you know, he, he has his restaurant, Spork, and next door is a large lot. So he thought that must be a garden. No, we're not talking about a few herbs and lettuces. We're talking about a full-time gardener, every kind of tested out exotic vegetable, plus all the basics he needs for both of his restaurants, Spork and Spork Pit. And that, of course, leads to a whole new idea, which is a vegetarian tasting menu, which is now available in the restaurant. So so here's our guy. (laughs) Well, it's summertime and the living is easy, although not always for gardeners. And restaurateurs that deal with gardens. Not, not so very good for sound guys either. <laughs> no. But we're, we're talking to Christian Frangiatis, who's the chef and owner of Spork, uh, Spork Pit and the Spork Garden. And we're going to be talking to Jonathan Corey, who is the gardener extraordinaire. And Jonathan, let's, let's just say that Chris was very prescient and when the land came available next to Spork the restaurant, he bought it and it got you and you've made a beautiful garden. Tell us a little bit about your garden, the size of it, what you're growing. First of all, I guess I should say you yourself are a self-taught gardener, are you not? Yes, that's correct. Uh, How did you get interested in gardening? So... So, uh, Chris, how did he get interested in gardening? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so John was our general manager. He went off to hike the Appalachian Trail, took a leave of absence, and when he came back, we had fortuitously bought the land next to next to Spork, and we, in short order, determined that turning it into a garden would be the best thing that we could possibly do for the restaurant. Um, John came back from the Appalachian Trail, and he was ready to do something else. And he had always had a kind of interest in gardening. Even he and I worked together in the Virgin Islands, and I remember him him trying to grow eggplant over there. And, oh wow! <laughs> and and uh, so he was always like really interested in this. And when the opportunity came up for him to essentially be a full time gardener slash farmer, he jumped on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a marvel to see. I mean, we drive by it and we. We wander through the rows, and it's it's an amazing thing. Especially this year is like such a tough gardening year too, and yet he's producing miracles out of there. How big is this garden, and what are the various elements? So, you know, I, since, since I'm the chef, and I I don't exactly know, I haven't measured it, but I can tell you it's pretty big. It's more like a small farm. Yeah, um, I think so too. I'm I'm guessing something to the. That maybe 150 feet by 150 feet, and then there's also a separate greenhouse. Um, so John, you're going to be year-round, too. Yeah, and uh, certainly whatever we're able to do in the greenhouse so will, you know, would would help tremendously during the during the fall and winter. But you know, right now in the summer is really peak season for us. Well, yeah, and he's growing all the stuff you need uh, for for your restaurants. Yes, that's correct. I mean, I I would say that we're down to maybe less than 10% 
of, of total produce is store-bought at this point because it is peak season. Uh-huh. It's amazing. Um, yeah. And, and now, you've, you've led, let it let lead you into different areas. And uh, also, very specifically, you start, you've started a, um, a, a garden menu. Yes. I mean, pretty much at this point, the quantity of produce that, that comes out of the garden is is actually huge. And because there's so much work and so much expense involved with the garden itself, that you really have an obligation not to waste anything. Mm-hmm. Um and that and that basically means that at this time when when there's so much stuff coming out that the menu winds up being tailored um, really garden first the whole menu is like garden centric so he may show you know he may harvest fifty pounds of cucumbers tomorrow and I'll walk in the door and there's fifty pounds of cucumbers sitting on the bar and I need to come up with things right away to make sure that we're utilizing everything that he's worked so hard to turn out. No, no, you tasted menu. How many courses was it? So we're doing a seven-course vegetarian tasting menu, as well as a seven-course um, tasting menu that has some meat and fish on it as well. Um, but pretty much everything in the restaurant right now has some some element of of the garden, and probably some element of fermentation, which is also a byproduct of the garden. Yeah, explain that. What do you mean by that? So I mean, if we have if we have a hundred pounds of some kind of produce, we're a small restaurant, and we're not going to be able to use it before before its shelf life deteriorates. So we started fermenting a lot of things: fermenting asparagus, fermenting um, squash, fermenting tomatoes, um, because basically that that increases the shelf life and it adds an interesting element to the menu. Because frankly, fermented vegetables are really delicious. Now, Chris, you mentioned something a little bit ago, which you hadn't mentioned earlier. So, which is you're, you're growing and fermenting asparagus. Now, well, we're not. We're we're fermenting asparagus. We were actually getting this. The one thing that we're oh, not okay. right. we're not growing asparagus, but we are purchasing local asparagus. That's oh, okay. kind of in the ten percent. But we are. You know, making pickles out of just about everything, and, and, yeah. and fermented pickles at that. Right, no, we had um, everybody loved it, that that tasting menu. The ricotta mint pea ravioli. What went into that? So that was our the, that was our garden mint. That was um, for, uh, some fresh peas. It was also um, ricotta, and then we had fava beans that came out of the garden as well. That kind of garnished the plate and and added a bit of texture. And then um, a ravioli with a. Um, Kind of like a, a koji water fermented tomato water um, light sauce that, that we use with a bit of a garum. Tell us about koji. You're in love with koji. Yeah, we like koji a lot. So it's it's really just it's a delicious mold. It's the it's the um, kind of active ingredient in both sake and in um, miso. So miso is you know typically um, soybeans and koji. Um, sake is fermented with koji and um, koji has a bunch of other uses as well so you can use it as a curing agent for meats and um, you can use the basically the water to either make stock or to actually ferment the water and use it as a flavoring agent so um, yeah we use a lot of that 
You gonna stop making sake soon too? Uh, sake is not gonna, that is not on my playlist. Oh, it's not? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> no. Um, I'm, I'm really much more interested in kind of like the non-traditional uses of, the non-traditional uses of, um, of, um, koji. Uh-huh. Um, listeners, listeners, by the way, be, be aware this this restaurant's going to open in slightly less than two hours, so, <laughs> so, so don't be don't, don't be surprised if there are some noises off. Yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, okay. So anyway, yeah. So I mean, so we're doing. So what the garden has spawned basically is is it's it's this kind of huge fermenting program, and then this and we're just always trying to find ways to basically process the hundreds of pounds worth of stuff. It, now, is she going to be growing like experimental things? Like, well, not even experimental. Although my mother was a gardener, and she kept coming up with what was then experimental. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, I think first time we had something from the garden last year, you had a special cucumber, and I mean, she could be experimenting with different varieties of traditional veggies and stuff. Yeah, I mean he's a, he's got and and unfortunately I don't know all the names of these things, but mm-hmm. I can tell you there was like a something like eleven different kinds of cucumbers. I mean we're making our own cornerstones. Um, we're using uh, cucumbers like as as a base for seafood dishes, like splintered cucumbers um, that that have been infused. Um, we're making tons of different kinds of pickles, um, and there's the same thing goes with peppers. I mean there's. He, I think he has like 17 different varieties of peppers, everything from sweet to hot to uber hot to atomic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're finding a lot of uses for that. Um, you know, not not the least of which is is an entire bourbon barrel full of um, fermented hot sauce. <laughs> and we wind up cooking. You made with that, all. huh? Yeah, I, actually, John made that. So, wow. so yeah, it's like you know. So you're always just trying to find, you know find uses for things like a big hit on the menu right now is we're doing um a hummus dish where we're, we're basically um topping the hummus with with uh, basically all the different fermented vegetables that we have are you growing chickpeas <laughs> no we are not growing chickpeas but but the hummus is is um that that particular dish is a lot of work <laughs> A lot of this sounds a lot of work. Are you going to have to increase staff or what? Uh, no, not really. I think we just have, have learned to work smarter. You know, mm-hmm. we we have a bunch of different misos going, and and it's just like I, I think we've we've learned to kind of large batch things. Uh-huh. You know, so I mean, it definitely takes a lot of focus, and it, and it it takes a lot of productivity, but it's it's not crazy. You know, it, it's it's kind of controllable. But I think I think the thing that that the garden really has done is it's pushed the envelope in terms of creativity for us because we constantly are trying to figure out how to use different things and how to best use them. Um, the garden is not a money saving proposition for no, us. Uh, we just, found that out with my mother actually. <laughs> right. It's just. But what it is is it it it, it makes the restaurant exponentially better and even. Things that are common, you know, things like basil or or mint and things like that, seem to just taste so much better 
coming out of the garden, and, and John could probably speak to this, but I think it's really a question of um, the soil and, and the food that the, the food that we're that we're feeding the plants, and, and it not being commercial commercial plant food. Um, but everything just seems to taste exponentially better. And, and frankly, as, as a chef, that was a surprise to me because we always source things from very reputable sources. But we notice there's a big difference. And maybe it, it has something to do with just the freshness of it being picked in the oh, morning sure. and used. You know, or maybe soils, all of the above. But the soil is another thing, as I know that's absolutely essential. And I know what that soil was like before you took it on as a garden. It was not great. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Now, here's a question for you. What do you, what do your neighbors think? I mean, you, in, a, in a way, you've really sort of invaded their neighborhood. Yeah, so... With all these massive growing plants. Yeah, and in, in the beginning, there was a little bit of resistance towards it because I think the um, Bloomfield Garfield Corporation was, was thinking that it might be a, a place to put housing. Uh-huh. Um but once we bought the lot and turned it into a garden, it's been the opposite. I mean, everybody just seems to think that it's like a great addition to the neighborhood. I mean, it smells good. It looks good. How do you keep people from taking stuff? I mean, I caught somebody picking peaches off my peach trees one day. So we have not had that problem, and we don't really do anything. It just seems like um, tomatoes don't seem to be on the list of things that that people want to take around here. <laughs> I see. <laughs> so we, we've done nothing, although Jonathan does have a, have a German shepherd that, that kind of, he doesn't, he doesn't guard the garden, but he's in the garden a lot of times. So. <laughs> uh, he doesn't live there. He's kind of fierce looking. <laughs> he is, and he's a big baby. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell people that. Don't spread that around. Yeah. Well, so. this is something that I can tell is going to keep growing. Um, yeah, we're sorry we lost Jonathan, but he's a, he's in route someplace or back from someplace. Yes, to, he's, yeah. he's he's actually he's actually in route to go check out pawpaws that he planted on my partner's property in West Virginia. Oh, really? Oh, oh wow! You're not getting them because I was so used to having them uh, surplus of them in Indiana, you know, <laughs> and now they're a rarity in in, in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I know very little about pawpaws outside of the fact that he's planted some in West Virginia, and apparently they won't be ready for at least a year or something to that effect. But. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, yeah, asparagus, if you're going to attempt asparagus, that takes a long time to get established. Well, if he needs a book on pawpaws, we probably have one somewhere. <laughs> yeah. We'll keep our eyes out for a book on pawpaws. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyhow, anything else you want to tell us? No, and I, I, the only thing I can say is, I mean, he's done such a tremendous job with this garden, and the garden has really, I think, just really elevated the restaurant tremendously. Oh, and agree. we're very fortunate to have him. We're very fortunate to have the garden. And it's really been a blast. And, and I think that I've probably learned more in, in the year that we've had this garden than I have in the 15 years prior to it in terms of being a chef. Well, that's great. Well, that's, I guess, the direction we're all going in. It's all organic. It's all natural, right? Right. Exactly. Right. And I, and just, you know, I'm lucky enough to have, have a partner who's willing to invest money in these kinds of, of rabbit holes. <laughs> well. Hey, you want a rabbit? 
You want a rabbit? We'll, br- we'll bring you one. <laughs> we have rabbits also. <laughs> oh, rabbit tastes good. <laughs> You're not supposed to say that. <laughs> well, it does. <laughs> I love rabbit. So, yeah. so, does, so does that duck thing you do. <laughs> no. Well, well that press, 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 press duck, right? The press, the, the press duck, yeah. Um, it's the only place we were about so we, we didn't get we, a whole press but not these We could go on forever. We better, we better let you get behind the stove, Chris. Okay. Thank you so much, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. And, All right. And, uh, yeah, give our best to Jonathan. All right. Absolutely. Okay, honey. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. I think you got some bonus footage this week. Sweetheart, the man behind the microphone is exhausted. <laughs> it's it's time to gather my energy for next week's program, so be, be sure to join us then. Same time, same place, and until then... Bye-bye.